Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Um, this week, we are continuing our series going through uh, the doctrines of grace, and this week we're talking about limited atonement. Uh, but before we get there, I want to do just a quick recap of the last two weeks. Uh, but also, we didn't finish uh, going through Romans 9 uh, in regards to unconditional election last week. So I would like to finish that, and then we can um, get started into limited atonement. Um, so does anyone remember when we were talking about total depravity, kind of what the key word was uh, behind that doctrine? Yeah, with depravity. It wasn't depravity, but it, close. Yeah, ability. Ability or, or inability. And so we talked about uh, we are either able or unable to choose uh, God or the things of God. And what total depravity teaches us or tells us what we see in Scripture is that outside of God's grace, we are unable to choose him. Every part of our being is corrupted with sin. Therefore, we needed God to intervene for us. And that's what kind of led us into talking about the, the Pelagian view of things versus the Augustinian view of things. So Pelagian's viewpoint was this, that uh, if God demanded perfection, then he was going to give us the ability to be perfect. Uh, but all of us in here would say we're not perfect, and therefore we would lean with the Augustinian view, which says we need God's grace in order uh, to choose him. And we, we see that clearly in Ephesians 2. Um, and as a result of total depravity or our moral inability to choose God, we needed God to intervene. And that's where we talked about this illustration last week of drowning, if you guys remember that. And the options were is either God throws us a life raft and we have the ability to go grab it and he pulls us in, or God himself has to dive in, grab us out of the water and resuscitate us. Uh, and that's what we believe that the Bible teaches uh, that God loves us so much uh, that he would come sacrifice himself for us. Um, so, anyway, uh, the way that we concluded last week uh, was by studying what I believe is probably the most clear depiction of um, unconditional election, which is in Romans 9. Um, anyone, let's go ahead and flip to Romans 9 as we finish this out. But who remembers how Romans 9 starts? What was kind of Paul's uh, theme or heart as, as he started this chapter? Prayer. prayer. Yep, there's prayer. Prayer for what? Yeah, his kinsmen, right? His people. And, and why, why was he praying for his people here? Verse 2. Yeah, he loved his people, and, and he had sorrow for them. Uh, he had anguish, unceasing anguish, for the sake of his brothers. Um, and he was getting ready to deliver what a hard truth was. Uh, and this hard truth was um, where he divvies up between... Um, Esau and Jacob. And so we see that in verse... 
12 and 13, where it says, Jacob I love, Esau I hated, and he differentiates between two brothers, uh, where God chooses one for his glory, uh, for his purposes to be redeemed, and he also chooses Esau for his glory, but in the way that he chose him was uh, through wrath. Now, that kind of left us, at least it left me, uh, you know, when I first read this passage, uneasy. Like, is, is this really... Uh, is this really just? Is this really uh, justice on God's part? And, and Paul knew that we would have that struggle or that thought. And that's where he starts writing in verse 14. If you remember this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, so, Anyway, Romans 9 was a heavy passage, as you can tell by the room right now. Like, uh, th- this isn't as, um, although it is as appealing to who God is in his character, it's not as, uh, as fun-loving as the talking about God's grace and how, uh, you know, in, in the sense where he loved us so much that he paid the cost for us. Because at this time, we also have to look at the opposite picture uh, and what that should point us to. Uh, this is his sovereignty and his glory. Um, so, anyway, that's a recap. So, unconditional election, but today we're going to be talking about limited atonement. Uh, raise your hand, we did this last week, if you grew up attending a church that talked about uh, limited atonement. Literally two people. <laughs> okay, so, limited atonement. Um, we need to spend a lot of time talking about atonement, but first, I remember the first time I heard about limited atonement. Uh, it was my, probably the end of my freshman year of college, sophomore year of college, I just became a Christian. And so this would have been 2011. And there was a hero of mine that, uh, I, I'm going to preface the story by saying, he should not be our spiritual hero. We should not listen to him. Uh, we would not endorse his teaching. But at the time, he was the man and Mark Driscoll. I don't know if you guys remember Mark Driscoll, uh, but 2010, he was, he was the guy for young Reformed theology. I mean, he was the yeller, the screamer, uh, here's truth. And I was like, I love this guy. Uh, and he gave a sermon, a sermon series on Calvinism. He declared himself as a four-point Calvinist. Has anyone ever heard of a four-point Calvinist before? Very common, uh, you know, relatively common. Um, and what a four-point Calvinist is, um, that's the only reference to Driscoll, just because I heard him say this once, was that they believe in all of the points of Calvinism and Reformed theology except for limited atonement. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, so the question is why. Uh, why would someone say, I, I told depravity, I'm there. Unconditional election, yes. Perseverance of the saints, absolutely. Irresistible grace, I'm there. But limited atonement, yeah, that one just doesn't make, that, that doesn't make too much sense to me. Uh, and I think if, if the reason why is because of how kind of sometimes flippantly we can talk about how God redeems his people. Um, and I think when we study the scriptures, we, we can come to a, a pretty... You know, R.C. Sproul, when I was reading a couple of his books on this, would say this is probably the easiest to believe, uh, limited atonement, which, you know, kind of contradicts this idea of having four-point Calvinists. Um, and just to be clear, I, I think we would say this is a secondary issue, uh, limited atonement, that 
at, at the end of the day, what atonement is, is, is where we're all on the same page, that Christ came to pay the penalty for sinners. Um, but this is a very important doctrine that we uh, believe that we need to study, have knowledge of. Um, but in order to do that, I think we need to start with the word atonement, and then from there, talk about why it is either limited or unlimited. So, if you remember, we, we touched on these things briefly when we were talking about Christ alone as we studied the five solas. But I just want to talk a little bit about what atonement is. I believe it's fourfold, and that will give us a clear picture um, of what is actually being atoned and how it's being atoned. So the first is expiation. And so if you want a really clear definition on expiation and propitiation, Ligonier wrote a fantastic article on this. But more or less, here's what it is. It's that Jesus bore our sins, he took them on himself, and he did away with them. In other words, this is Jesus covering our sin. Um, Jesus dying on the cross, absorbing our sin, taking it out. It's It's expiation. Propitiation is the reality that Jesus doesn't just take away our sin, but he takes on God's wrath for us. See this in Romans 3.25 and, and for expiation, 1 Peter 2.24. Sorry about that. Uh, and yeah, just another thing with expiation. This is amazing. Uh, what expiation does is it is there for us being made righteous. Uh, that is what happens when our sin is taken away. But propitiation, uh, the consequence of that is God no longer looks at us with wrath but he looks at us as a beloved son which, with whom he's well pleased. Uh, it's a beautiful picture that we see throughout Romans. Um, and then reconciliation. So as a result of our sins being taken away, as a result of God's wrath being laid on Christ, we're then reconciled uh, to God. And, and reconciliation is one of my favorite things that we can talk about in regards to um, ourselves coming into relationship with Christ because like all of us, at some point in our lives, there's going to be divide between us and our friends or us and our spouse or us and our children or us and our coworkers. Uh, and you know that divide, right? Where it's like, man, I really don't want to be in the room with this person. We're having conflict, tension, yelling at each other. I know there's something not right. And it takes someone to come to the other person and say, hey, I want things to be made right. Uh, and that can you know, mean a, a, a number of things. It could be apologizing, asking for forgiveness, uh, mending the relationship. And what happens between us and God is, is he does all of those things. Uh, is he comes to us and, and restores us, reconciling us back to him in a proper relationship. And we see that really clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I think that's an amazing verse for a few reasons. One, uh, it's giving us the promise and the assurance that God has came to reconcile us back to him for all those who trust in Christ. But also that is, is if that is you, and if that is us as the church, that we need to take that message out. That the, that the people need to know that through Christ, they can be reconciled to God. And then finally, redemption. And when we talked about redemption last time, I shared that Leviticus passage with you. Do you remember that when I shared this? This is one of my favorite things, so you're going to remember it this time. Uh, But in Leviticus 25, uh, Moses writes uh, a law for the redemption of property. You remember now? It's okay if you don't. Uh, 
Uh, but what the passage talked about is when a man becomes so poor that he has to lose his property, uh, there's two things that has to happen if the man's still in debt. The first thing that's possible is that if he does not pay back the debt, he'll go to prison. That he'll lose what he has and has to either work his way in slavery back to pay off his debt or to be jailed. But the out is that the man can have someone come in for him and redeem him. He's known as the redeemer. And so he pays back the debt, restores the property back to the man, and they move on from there. And so what all of us need is we need that redeemer. We need someone to step in on our behalf, pay the penalty, and restore to us the proper state that we see you know, in Genesis 1. Mark 10.45 is, is the beautiful picture of this. That even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we see clearly in atonement, is that Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, now, as far as uh, primary doctrine goes, all people who hold to the truth of Scripture, to God's sovereignty, to man's sinfulness, Christ being the Redeemer, would say, we believe that, that all four of those aspects of atonement are true. All Christians... uh, holding to those primary beliefs that we talk about every week, would say we believe that is true for atonement. Christ takes on our sin, God's wrath, he redeems us, restores us into a right relationship with God. But that's not the question that we're talking about today. So that's half of it, the atonement part. But what we need to talk about is whether that atonement is unlimited or limited. Now, uh, does anyone want to take a guess on what unlimited atonement is? Right. Uh, and not just that he died for all people, but, but that the atonement has the, uh, has the effect to cover the, to cover the sins of all people. And so the way we kind of have to look at this is uh, there's two kind of ways to look at uh, issues in life, right? Or problems, questions, controversies, politics, all things. Uh, the first is you can look at things in a spectrum. And a spectrum is kind of like a range. You know, it's, so one side is, uh, I guess I can give you a political example. I think this is okay. Uh, so one side would, you know, politics in America today, uh, they're very uh, black and white. You, you kind of have to pick an extreme. We'd say that's, for the most part, true. If you're a Republican you're, and you're voting for this candidate, all of these aspects are going to be involved with this candidate, whether you agree with all of them or not. Same thing's true for the Democratic Party. Not saying one is right or the other, but I'm just saying that's politics. They're in extremes. So whether you want to be on one extreme or not, that's what's going to happen when you vote for a candidate. Um, but when we view things black and white... You're not saying, so if I say I voted for Donald Trump or if I voted for Hillary Clinton, just because I voted for one doesn't mean I believe with all the things that they're saying, but you get lumped in with a group. Make sense? Would we agree with that? It's okay uh, if you don't. Uh, Anyway, so that's kind of one side of things. But the other would be a spectrum. So the spectrum would be, you know, 10 is I totally agree with Donald Trump. One is I totally agree with Hillary Clinton. And then you can fall somewhere on a spectrum. So I might be a 7 out of 10. Therefore, I believe mostly with this guy, but I believe a, a part of these things. Does that make sense where I'm coming from on this? I'm not getting any affirmations. I don't know if this point is making sense. The point is, is that not everything is always black and white. It's not always one extreme or the other. You can be semi-moderate 
or semi-conservative, semi-liberal. The point is not, the political thing is just an illustration. <laughs> not actually talking about politics with atonement. That's not the point. Um, don't make me go there. Um, so, with atonement, the point of me saying this for atonement was that it is a black and white category. There is not a spectrum with how you fall with limited and unlimited atonement. You can't be a 7 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10. You're either one or the other. Okay, so unlimited atonement is this, that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the whole world. Limited atonement, Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of all who would trust in him. Do you see why there's not a spectrum here? You can't kind of fall in between the two. It's he either died for the sins of all people who had trust in him, or he did not. Yeah, question. So what happens to the child that Good question. We're not there yet, uh, but I'll, I'll answer it later. And I would, I'll just answer, I'll answer it very quickly. And, and Sure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. I, to be, yeah, I mean, I think it could fall under this idea of atonement. I mean, I, c- candidly, I'd be very clear that I, I believe all children, uh, before some point where they can make a, a decision to trust in Christ, would fall under this idea of uh, that they would go to heaven. To be very clear and not extend in this, because that's not where we're going, but that's what my viewpoint would be and the view of our pastors as well. Um, I think it's a, a really beautiful picture of God's grace as well, and it's a lot for children that we see throughout the Gospels. But anyway, it's not where we're going. Good question, fair question. Um, but we're talking about this idea of whether atonement is for just those who would trust in Christ or for all people. And you can see why when you read that description for unlimited atonement, if I would have just put that up there without unlimited atonement, you'd probably say, oh, I think that, I think that could be true. Like, I hear that a lot. Like, for God to love the world, and so it's like, makes sense. But when you read the second one, you're like, okay, maybe I believe that. I don't really know. And so I kind of want to come in and, and help us have a better understanding of what Reformed theology, what the Bible teaches about whether atonement is limited or unlimited. Okay, and the way I want to do that is I think the best way, kind of like with total depravity, we talked about the word ability. I think the best word to kind of direct our time for this would be the word intention. The word is intention. So the ultimate question has to do not with the sufficiency or efficiency of the atonement. Because we would all say, all Christians everywhere would say, the atonement was sufficient. What Jesus did on the cross was enough to pay for the sins of mankind, right? So the question is, is whether it's all of mankind or just for his people. We believe the cross was sufficient. But the question is, is with its design, was God's original purpose or intent, what was God's original purpose or intent in sending a son to the world? Was his divine plan to make redemption possible or certain? That's the question. Was redemption made to be possible or certain? So the way we're going to do it is talk about this. And, and maybe another question to think about is, what was God's goal on the cross? And maybe think about that for just a few seconds. When you think about the cross, what was the goal, the purpose, or the intention of the cross? We have a few options. The first is this, is was it that God would give man the chance to trust in him? That, that would be the question of unlimited atonement. 
that the purpose of the cross was to give all people a shot. That you could, you know, at any point say, I'm going, or that God said, looked at the cross, said, all people now will have the possibility to trust in me. And I think the, the follow-up questions just that we have to ask is, okay, so if that was the purpose, what would be the metric? So metric is how you gauge something to know if that goal is going to be accomplished. Because theoretically, if that was the goal, then no one could have trusted in Christ, right? No one could have became a Christian. And therefore, the, atone, or the cross saved no one. That, that is a possibility if God was saying, we're just going to make it possible for all people. So if that's our metric, would we say that the cross uh, accomplished its goal if no one trusted in Christ? Right? That, that's a fair question to ask. Yeah, question? I would use the word opportunity rather than the ability. Well, intention. Intention's the word that we're going with. Right? Yeah, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think we're on the same page. Um, so, so if that is one side of things, then the, then the second option would be, uh, and what I think makes the most sense, is that Jesus Christ set out for the cross for two reasons. One is to live in obedience to the Father. Is This was God's plan for Christ to go to the cross and die. And second is to redeem his sheep. And this is such a beautiful picture in John 10. And really what we see throughout the, the New Testament and, and songs that we sing uh, with such love is that God knows and Christ knew his sheep. And he knew who was going to call him by name. And it was all throughout uh, his intentions to die for his people. And I think maybe the best way to look at limited atonement is we kind of have to work our way through where we started. And where we started was with this idea of total depravity. So to reiterate, talking about moral inability, that our sinful nature separate us from God, and therefore we needed unconditional election. We needed God to intervene and choose us. And we see in Ephesians 1 what we were chosen for. It's a big question. What were we chosen for? Adoption. When God elected his people, he elected them to be adopted as sons and daughters. So you're no longer an enemy but a child of God. And when Jesus' blood was spilled on the cross, I don't believe that one drop of his blood was wasted. I believe that each drop was spilled to pay for the sins of his people, for all of those who had trust in him. Theoretically, if Jesus died on the cross for all people and those who did not trust in him, that Jesus', Jesus sacrifice did not meet its goal. It, it did not meet the goal for all people trusting in him, but if his goal was to atone for the sins of all people who would trust in him, it was accomplished. So, and I, and I think when we look at this, we need to see what does it mean for God to be sovereign? Um, and I think the best way to look at God's sovereignty is looking uh, at what's, you know, called the omnis. Shailen also has a song called the omnis uh, that talks about all three of these, and I think they're helpful. Uh, and one of these specifically, omniscient, which we'll talk about towards the end, uh, we'll, we'll kind of back this idea of limited atonement. But I want to talk about all three of these uh, so we get an idea of what does it mean for God to be sovereign. And if God is sovereign, uh, then we know that total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement 
falls in line with that. So what does it mean for God to be omnipotent? What does that mean, omnipotent? Power. What, what would kind of, what would be some characteristics of God being all-powerful? Maybe some things that we see, some things that we know, read in scripture. Creation. What else? What? Flood. Yeah. What else? Salvation. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Nothing can usurp that power. What else? Yeah, sustaining everything. We see that in Colossians. Really, really clear that in him all things hold together. What else? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm, yeah, that's really good. Well done. Uh, through Job, uh, God, God and Satan's dialogue through Job, that, that God's power was ultimately uh, made very clearly uh, in that entire book, but through Job. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about unconditional election, right, is, is that there can be those who are so diametrically opposed to the things of God, things that probably we would say are, were true of ourselves uh, at some point when we were not yet in Christ. We want nothing to do with him. We did not want to trust in Christ, and yet he intervened for us, restored us, uh, saved us when we want nothing to do with him. I mean, that is, that is power, what about God being omnipresent? What does that mean? Ever at the same time? Can't flee from his presence. Yeah, what, what are some uh, realities of God's omnipresence? Yeah, he is that he is. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, no limits. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. For the believer, omnipresence should be incredibly comforting. Psalm 23 is the beautiful picture of this, that even when God's leading us behind calm and still waters, pastures, but also even in the shadow of the valley of death, uh, it's a beautiful picture of God being with us, um, promises that we see for his people throughout scripture. Uh, But where I want to spend a little bit more time is on um, God's omniscient. What does that mean? All-knowing. What are some... Uh, consequences of God being all-knowing. Knows all of our sins? sins? Absolutely. All of our motives? motives. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. He knows... Can you say that again? Yeah, God's ordaining all things in. What else? Yeah, he knows us. 
He knows every part of our being. What else? Knows the end from the beginning. What does Jesus say in regards to the end times? Yeah, he'll be with us, but also that who knows when the end times are coming. Do we know? No. Do the disciples know? No. But, but God is, is the one who knows. I mean, I mean he, can, he knows what is going to happen uh, before it happens. Uh, and, I, and I think what we see in 1 John three nineteen twenty, by this we shall know we are the truth and we share our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Um. I mean, I think it's even, I mean, it's amazing to think about that God knew each one of us before we trusted in him. All of the things that we struggled with, all of our pain, suffering, doubts, and yet loved us enough to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose him, I'm going to choose her. I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture uh, to know that what it means for God to be omniscient is that when Jesus hung on the cross, God knew that in that moment he was paying for your sin and my sin. For, for those who trust in Christ, he knew Kyle Beckrick's sin on the cross uh, and said, I'm still going to go. I'm still going to go. Um, but the consequences of this you know, are very important when we're talking about limited atonement. Because w- what this means is that if God really uh, is each one of these characteristics that therefore he would know in the moment who is going to trust in him and who is not going to trust him. If we really believe that God knows all things, if he knows all things, motives, intentions, what is going to happen, what every word that Ernie or Bryce is going to say this morning and their motives behind it, if he knows all of those things, he will know who will and who will not trust in him. But not only that, if we back it with God's omnipower, his omnipotence, sorry, I want to be technical here, uh, that his power, like we're talking about in saving people, they coexist with one another. So not only does God save, but he knows who he will save, Romans chapter 9. So I think I just want to give one potential objection that you may believe or may hear in regards to limited atonement. I want to address it, and then I think that'll probably uh, put us at time. So, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, uh, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all shall reach repentance. What do you do with a verse like that? Follow the you. Believe it? Look at the Greek, yeah. <laughs> Bryce, I need you. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, seriously, I do. <laughs> if I had to look at the Greek. Um, but yeah, follow the you. That's what Blake said. We're going to do a little bit of that. I think that's helpful. But I think these, these are verses that, you know, we need to hear, we need to understand. Um, and, and I think even maybe just as important as the you is, what does it, what does it mean uh, when we talk about the will of God. That's an important thing, right? Talk about God's will for your life. God's will for your life is this. God's will for your life is that. What does it mean to know and understand the will of God? Um, R.C. Sproul helped me a lot with this. 
uh, and the way he, he talked about this is we need to have an understanding of what the will of God is and that there are uh, uh, different forms of the will of God. And I, and I think this will make a lot of sense as I kind of uh, go through each of these. So the decorative will of God is this. This is the sovereign will of God that cannot be resisted. Let me give you an example of this. This would be, so whatever God decrees comes to pass, let there be light. Light comes to pass. Um, God chooses to harden Pharaoh's heart. It comes to pass. Whatever God decrees comes to pass. When God speaks, it happens. That's probably the will of God that we think of the most uh, and is a very true form of God's will. But there's other types of will as well. Um, So there's the perceptive will of God, and this would be uh, any sort of commands of God. So it is God's will that you don't have sex before you're married. That's, That's God's will. We see it very clearly in Scripture. It's a command of God. That's his will for you. Now, that doesn't mean that you do that. You, you can choose to resist the perceptive will of God or his commandments, and we see that especially with Israel. Here's, here's my commands for you. I'm going to choose to do differently. Now, that doesn't mean that God's will is that you, because here, here's what we think about a lot of the time, uh, and, and maybe this will be, a, and I'll, let me do the third one first, then I'll give us some illustrations of these. Uh, the will of disposition. So this is the will of God's character, that which pleases him, delights him, but can also uh, be resisted. Um, okay, so when we think about these, this, this will be helpful. So often we struggle with this idea of, am I really living out God's will for my life? Um, and we can struggle with that for a variety of reasons. But what we know for sure is that if we are living outside of what Scripture says, we're not living in accordance to God's word, right? So if we, we open up, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this or that, and then we choose to do the opposite, uh, even though God is allowing you to still live, it does not mean you are living in accordance with the will of God. Does that make sense? So God says, do not be greedy. And if you choose to be greedy, that doesn't mean that God is pleased with your greed, Right? It means by his common grace, he's allowing you to repent, which we see in Romans. Uh, but his will is that you would repent. And what, what does that mean? That what would please him is if you repented from your sin. But if in a moment God decided to say, boom, repent, you would repent. It's the credit of the will of God. So when it comes to this passage, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, what is the will of God that is being used here? Uh, if it was the first one, then all men would repent. If it was God's will that all should repent, and if he was decreeing that, then every single person would repent of their sins, and every person would be a Christian. Is that true? Do we see that? No. That's, that's not the type of will here either. Uh, and he's not talking about a, a moral command here that, all, uh, that he wills that none should perish, so therefore he is going against his commandments but what pleases God and what he would delight in is if men would repent, people would repent. Uh, and we see this with Israel, right? What would please God is if the nation of Israel repented from their sin. And did they repent? No. But yet he still interceded for some, which we talked about last week when we were talking about the circumcision of the heart. 
Okay, that's a lot of information in 35 minutes. Talking about will and atonement and political illustrations. So I'd love to spend the next few minutes trying to tackle any questions or things that maybe weren't as clear. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, the question that was asked is, is God um, as present or as interested in, in the non-believer as he is in the believer? Um, the, the quick answer is no, but it's a no but. And, and so I think what we see really, really clearly in Scripture and even just in, a, in life around us is God's common grace is, it is, it is beautiful and amazing. Uh, what God allows all people around the world to partake in. Uh, food and happiness and, and moments of pleasure and uh, being able to hold a child and being able to eat an amazing steak and being able to see a mountain and ski down it. I mean, it's, it's beautiful and it's amazing. Uh, but that is not, th- those are things that all people can experience by the grace of God. But if you're a believer you would never compare skiing down a mountain uh, to the assurance of knowing God loves you. So many times during the day I'm in situations and I call on him, you know, quietly. And probably many of us in here can think back to when we were non-believers and say, I mean, at least I can speak for myself, that uh, there was never a moment where I thought I needed uh, God's grace or needed God's help. And, and that could be for a variety of reasons. And I, and I think we'd all come in, in different standpoints there. But I think what we, what we do see and what we're going to talk about in three weeks when we're talking about perseverance of the saints um, is that being a part of, of the fold of God, and, and even for all of us who are believers in here, there is assurance and trust. And I mean, by the Spirit alone, I, I think we see, we see God is constantly drawing us back to him. Um, yeah, sorry, Dan. Yeah. And all of the invitations, why do you buy bread that does not satisfy? Come unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. That these are gracious invitations, and it shows that God does not take pleasure and is not ecstatically happy that he is destroying, you know, individuals who bear his image. Right. Yeah, the the good illustration of that would you know that would be, uh, it would, it would be a, you know a judge that we see today who's you know sentencing someone to you know to death or to life in prison. It, the judge isn't up there taking great pleasure and joy 
in the sentencing of someone to what they deserve, but he as a good judge is going to carry out the sentence uh, because those are the characteristics of a good and just judge. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good question. Yep. So, the, so the, what the question was is, what do I tell someone who says, uh, "Well, God didn't, God didn't predestine me, or God didn't choose me, so therefore I'm going to continue to do whatever I want." Um, well, the harm in that path, the harm in that thought is uh, it's not super practical. And it, you know what, what we see Jesus doing throughout the New Testament is he tells people to follow him, and you know he does that in a variety of ways: deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that invitation that Jesus extends is always open. And so, something that we should always be doing with our friends who don't know Christ is extending them the invitation to follow him. And we're called to do that. Romans chapter 10, Matthew 28, that we are called to go, we're called to proclaim the gospel, and we're called to say, come follow Christ, follow him. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus trained his followers to do, is, is to be fishers of men. Now, the, you know, the, the tension there is just like, I mean, I mean, when you see that, when you see someone respond that way, internally, at least you can think, man, this, this man or this woman just does not understand the grace of God. Uh, they, they cannot uh, and that should, you know, prompt us to respond more than anything with more compassion, more love. That this guy, although he knows and understands a the theological doctrine, uh, which is great, it, it means nothing if he does not understand what's really at stake. Um, and that should, yeah, go ahead, Caleb. That question carries a presupposition that I'm not Yeah, that he's not responsible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so in a situation like that, which I think to some degree all of us, I, I remember taking God to a weekly meeting at IEPUI uh, when I was a student there, and I remember leaving, and the, and the guy said, man, if, if this is true, God really must not love me. Like, if all these things you're saying are true, God, God must not love us. And he totally missed it. He, he totally missed that. It's, it's the opposite, that, that God really does love his people uh, and we, uh, as God's people, as the church, uh, we need to be extending that love to others. We need to be salt and light to the world. Um, and as part of that is we need to be extending the grace of God to others through the ministry of reconciliation that we talked about in First Corinthians. Yeah. Does God love me or does he not love me? Because we can't know that. And 
until there's that trust. Sure. But if there's trust in God, then he loves, you know, he's elected you. Um, so it's, I think we overthink it a lot. You know, we kind of put out these distinct limited versus unlimited, uh, but it's just either you trust him or you don't trust him. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I love the way that R.C. Sproul describes this doctrine. doesn't call it limited atonement. calls it God's purposeful atonement. And, th- and that's what we believe is that God's purposes uh, will be accomplished, that all those who God uh, will redeem will be redeemed. Uh, that Christ's death on the cross, every drop of blood, uh, w- no more questions, sorry, Blake, uh, or thoughts. So after I pray, you can decree it to the people. Uh, but that we, we, believe, uh, we believe in God's purposeful atonement. And I pray that even as we uh, worship for the next hour and a half or so, that that is the truth that we'll be clinging to and singing about. So next week we'll be talking about uh, irresistible grace. I'm really excited for that. So let me pray and then close. Lord God, we're um, God just overwhelmed um, by your love. God, when we look at the cross, God, and we see God, your power and forgiveness and glory, God, that you uh, long to atone for the sins of your people, God, and you, um, you died a death that we deserve in order to accomplish that, God. And I just pray, God, for us as uh, your people, God, that as we, um, God, worship here today, God, and, and sing songs and hear your word, God, I pray that that would uh, propel us to go out into the world, into our workplaces and our schools, and God, proclaim the ministry of reconciliation, God, that we see in, in 1 Corinthians. God, I pray that that would just be true of us. Um, God, I pray that people would see us, God, as salt and light to the world. God, I pray that you would see us that way. God, help us to do that. Help us to be that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.